Hello and welcome to episode number 55 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. This episode of the podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, June 22nd, 2009. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. In this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Amy Rosenthal of the Environmental Working Group, also known as the EWG. Amy is the Online Outreach Coordinator for Farm and Food for the EWG. And the Environmental Working Group produces useful resources to consumers while simultaneously pushing for national policy change. Amy Rosenthal, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hi. Amy, let's talk about uh, the Environmental Working Group and just in general what the EWG does. Yeah, well, our mission is to use public information to uh, protect public health and the environment. So basically what we do is we take a lot of information that, you know, is available to the public, um, would be available to you know, available to anyone, but that, you know, the general consumer doesn't always have the resources to, you know, analyze and understand. So we try to take that and put it out in a format that is more readily usable to kind of the the general layperson. So that's where we end up with lots of things like shopper's guides for pesticides, for cosmetics, for all sorts of uh, different things. Now, as I mentioned, you're the uh, outreach coordinator for Farm and Food. What does the EWG do in regards to Farm and Food? Well, the pesticide guide is uh, one of our, our biggest products. Um, but kind of beyond that, we also do a lot of work um, on agriculture. We're just starting to kind of expand our work on agriculture and climate change. Uh, for example, right now we're doing a lot of work on uh, biofuels, particularly corn ethanol. Um, but specifically in the in the food area, we're really interested in making sure that our food is safe, uh, particularly from toxic chemicals, you know, that tend to work their way into the food system. Of course, ethanol is a topic that we could probably spend a whole separate half hour on, at yeah, least. Of um, that is a big topic. So we won't go down that road, although it would be interesting maybe at some future time to talk about that. Uh, sure. But tell us about the Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. What exactly is it? Well, what we did is we took data that's available uh, mostly from the FDA, from their pesticide data testing program. A little, I'm sorry, that's from the USDA. We, um, that's where most of the data is from, and then there's some also from the FDA. Um, but they do testing um, uh, on various uh vectors of contamination with pesticide residue on different types of produce, and then we come up with our own analysis. So what we have in the end is a ranking of 47 different types of fruits and vegetables, and we've ranked them in order of how much pesticide residue is on them. According to your website, the concept here is that people can lower their pesticide exposure by almost 80% by avoiding uh, the top 12 most contamina contaminated fruits and vegetables and eating the least contaminated instead. How did you come up with this concept? Uh, well, that's just based on the number of, literally the number of pesticides that you would ingest if you ate, you know, all of the top 12 versus 
all of the 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 dirtiest um so that you know I would say that in and of itself is, you know, not necessarily what most people are going to end up doing. Most people are going to end up using the guide to, you know, try to minimize their risk with the the foods they're already eating. But I think that statistic is a pretty good um, kind of start comparison of, you know, how much pesticides are on some types of produce versus others. Now, the most contaminated fruits and vegetables directly from the list are the top five peach, apple, sweet bell pepper, celery, and nectarine. What exactly does this mean? So this means that, you know, if you're looking at um, kind of the number of um, detectable pesticides, the um, the various the number of different types of pesticides, how often pesticides are found on them, these are the ones that are most likely to have residue left on them after they've been kind of washed and prepared, you know, how you would generally eat them. So if you're eating those top five, then you have the most likelihood of being exposed to, you know, this pesticide residue. The list is also created based on uh, the number of different kinds of pesticides that the, are applied yeah. to the fruits and vegetables? It, yes, that that's one of um, the different measures of contamination. You know, it gets a, it, we consider it dirtier if it has a higher number of different pesticides on, on the sample. Okay, the least, com- the least contaminated are sweet peas, asparagus, mango, pineapple, sweet corn, avocado, and onion. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, just the uh, the reverse of what the dirtiest are. These are the ones that, you know, if you take an onion and, you know, you've peeled it, you're going to be, the that's going to be the one that you'll be least likely to find any sort of detectable pesticides, you know, pesticide residues, the least different types used on them. Um, and um, how reliable is this data? I mean, that's probably one of the first questions that comes to people's mind when they look at a list like this and say, okay, well, what was the exact, maybe a lot of people don't think of that, but um, maybe some of the more methodologically minded people like myself think, well, okay, how was this list actually put together and, you know, how reliable is the data that it's based on? Um, You know, to be honest, I can't, I'm not entirely familiar with the actual methods that the USDA is using on these samples, but, um, you know, I guess (laughs) to the extent that you're going to trust the USDA and uh, the data that they've released, it is aggregated, it's data from 2000 through 2007, so it's a a pretty big sample, Um, and we do make sure that we're only using, we're uh, only evaluating the fruits and vegetables that we have, you know, a relatively high amount of data for. For example, we get asked all the time, you know, what about blueberries? Why aren't they on the list? But for whatever reason, the USDA just hasn't evaluated the um, pesticide residue on blueberries. So we can't speak to that. Okay. And also, uh, one one other thing that I wonder about when I look at the list, mm-hmm. this is for only produce produced in the United States or only produce imported to the United States or how exactly is, is yeah, that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually, it's produce purchased in the United States. So it does include 
domestic and imported, you can notice that for some um, for some produce, we do we do um, indicate whether it is imported or not. For example, grapes um, are on the dirt. You'll see grapes on the dirty dozen list, but with the caveat that they are imported grapes. So domestic grapes don't tend to have the the levels of pesticides on them, and that's just based on on the USDA data. So, the so for most of these, you can assume that you know it's a combination of domestic and imported. Can can we also? How comfortable would you feel telling people to extrapolate people who maybe are? I mean, we do have some listeners who are in Europe, or you know, mm-hmm. maybe even in Japan. How comfortable would you be saying they can extrapolate from this list to kind of guide their produce purchases in their countries? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Um, to be honest, you know, just because I don't want to go ahead and, you know, tell people that they should extrapolate when I don't really have good cause to, I would probably say no. But um, on the other hand, you know, given kind of the global nature of our food system, I think you could probably take some sort of guidelines from this, even if you were um, – you know, in another country, um, I think I would imagine that, you know, we're, you know, of course, we're eating produce from all over the world. And I think that's probably the case um, in, you know, in a lot of countries. And I don't know, that's a tough one. Yeah. And also, um, the production practices vary so much from one Mm -hmm. country to the next. And people have Farmers in different countries have different problems with different pests and diseases, so we can imagine that, you know, the pesticides that are being applied are probably different, and, you know, what's legal there might not be legal here, so there's so many different variables at play. Yeah, that's true, probably when it comes down to it, you know, this is U.S. data, so we probably really shouldn't uh, be telling anyone uh, outside of the country that they can rely on it. On the other hand, it's better than nothing. I mean, th- this is the only list of its kind that I've seen. So Yeah, also true. Again, you know, it's kind of one of those questions that everyone has, is going to have to decide for themselves, unfortunately. Okay. Um, you've also built an application for the iPhone. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about this iPhone app and how it relates to this pesticide uh, in produce list? Sure. I mean, we're we're really excited about the iPhone app. It's our our first app that we've designed, and you know, a lot of the information that we release, our goal is to put it into the hands of consumers, you know, in a way that's as easy for them to use as possible. Um, so clearly, kind of now now is the time to start letting people be able to access things through through their phones. Um, so it's it's pretty simple. It's not it's not the flashiest of apps, but it's free, and once you download it, you then have access to the Dirty Dozen list, the Clean 15 list, and then also the list of all 43. So you can kind of pull up whichever one you're interested in really easily. It's all text, so it downloads really quickly, but it's just a really handy uh, guide for when you're actually in the aisle at the supermarket, you know, you're standing there wondering, oh, I'm looking at some broccoli. Do I really need to, you know, pay the extra dollar for the organic or am I going to be okay, you know, with the conventional if my budget doesn't really allow me to buy the organic? Do you have any anecdotal stories about 
how different people are using either the iPhone app or just the list in general in their lives or in their businesses or or what have you? Mm, you know, I don't I haven't heard any stories about people using the iPhone app. I know we've had um several hundred downloads already, so um I would love to hear some feedback uh, on that, um, but unfortunately, we haven't yet. I mean, I know personally, I talk to people all the time who carry the guide around in their wallet and do pull it out at the grocery store just um, in the way that I mentioned. I know certainly everybody here at the office does that, and I now know that I do not have to always worry about buying organic broccoli, which is something that I buy you know, all the time um, that it's on the clean 15 so I can, you know, just get that uh, conventionally. But we do, you know, get a lot of people um, kind of asking about ways that they can eat more healthfully, reduce their pesticide exposure while on a budget. So I think uh, people really do use this in their everyday lives for that purpose. And one of the things that, you know, I, I actually had no idea that this list existed until I just kind of, I'm always kind of just doing research, looking for good candidates to interview for our podcast. And that's pretty much how I came across uh, your list. I think I came across it on iTunes. And then Mm -hmm. I just did a little bit of research and said, well, that seems something that would be, that our listeners would certainly be interested in. And one of the ways I've thought about using it would be to just print out a copy, uh, for, for those of you, just to, to maybe give the listeners a little bit of background, you can go to the website and just download this list in a PDF format, and then you can just print it out, and probably what we're going to do is just put it in our kitchen, and then, you know, it's quite not quite as handy as having it there on your iPhone uh, when you're shopping, but, you know, I'm sure it starts to kind of get ingrained in your mind which ones are the really dirty ones and which one are the cleaner ones. And then that's just a little guide for us as we go out and make our purchases, our produce purchases, so that we know, you know, what kind of conventional foods to avoid and what kind of conventional foods we can we can purchase uh, mm-hmm. comfortably. Yeah, and I will say we do have uh, printed, we have little business card-sized wallet guides that are kind of on a thick card stock and a little glossy. So that's what I carry around in my wallet. Um, and we also have magnets printed with a list on them, which we um, are happy to send to pretty much anybody who makes a donation on our website or, you know, if you ask very nicely. Now, naturally, as always, for the show notes for this episode, we're going to link to the uh, the webpage where you can get this list so that for the people who are interested in actually just getting out there and, and downloading that right away so they can start making these uh, well-researched purchases, that they'll be able to do so. Another thing that comes to my mind is different languages. Has the list been published into, translated and published into different languages? No, unfortunately not yet. Um, I We could probably put it into Spanish pretty easily, you know, if we had a demand for that, but uh, unfortunately, no. Well, maybe that's something to look out for, and people who are, uh, you know, bilingual in that sense, maybe they would volunteer a little time and translate the list and and send it along. That would be great. Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about some other... uh, I I didn't read the list quite extensively. I mean, I I mostly just glanced over the the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. Um, And then, you know, there's a bunch of other ones in between. I believe there's 47 
items on the mm-hmm. list. Is yep. that correct? Okay. That so is correct. yeah, so there's quite a few. Um, now, are there other kinds of items that we would consume in our food, like flour or uh, you know uh, bacon or those sorts of things? <laughs> You know, unfortunately, we haven't done uh, any research on anything other than produce. We get a lot of requests for people concerned about nuts in particular and, you know, a few other grains. But the data set that we're looking at just doesn't have that information in it. So we just don't know anything about those. Is there data out there that you just haven't gotten a chance to look at or you're not sure if that data is out there? Uh, Do you have anything in the pipeline to look at anything like that? Well, you know, I was actually just talking to um, our computer programmer, who's kind of the mastermind behind all of this, and he said that there's just not the enough different types of nuts in the uh, USDA information that we're looking at to really be able to analyze um, anything else in the same way. So unfortunately, it's kind of something we're always keeping an eye out for, but as of right now, there are no, no solid plans um, to analyze anything else. Now let's see if we can just, you and I kind of just casually talking, do a little bit of an analysis and see if we can make any recommendations to consumers uh, that we feel comfortable with. My own personal take on this is that there are pretty dangerous levels of hormones and chemicals in milk and meat. Uh, You know, especially because that kind of, those, in the production of milk, in, in the conventional production of milk, there's the use of all kinds of different hormones and antibiotics and whoever else, who knows whatever else. And it's my sense, and I'm not an expert on, you know, how cows produce milk or, or even how goats produce milk, but I think we all have the sense that these kind of things kind of get concentrated in the milk and muscle tissue of the animals. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, as a as an EWG representative, I can't, I can't really speak to that. I mean, that's kind of outside of the scope of what, what we're doing. Just, uh, you know, as an interested food policy person, I would say that that, that makes sense with everything that, you know, I've read about um, related to these issues. But, I mean, again, I think really what you're getting at maybe is that it's a question of, you know, minimizing your exposure where you can. And I think asking those questions about, you know, where is it that the pesticide, the pesticides or levels are the highest is exactly, you know, why we have the guide and the types of, you know, decisions that we think it's important for people to be making. Well, it would certainly be interesting to see somebody do some research on, you know, comparing conventional to organic milk. I mean, I, we have a local dairy here and and I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we have a local dairy here. And I would really you know, love to purchase milk from them. And and sometimes we do. Um, But I kind of try to stay away from it for a few reasons. One reason is we actually, for our our family garden, had a big uh, load of manure from that dairy dropped off. And I could not get that stuff to compost. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of scratching my head about it. And I said, you know, probably what's going on here is the, the cows are so full of antibiotics that the bacteria and the like can't get started you know, to, to compost this stuff. And, you know, another thing that I noticed about that manure pile was that any kind of uh, red worms that I would put in there to try to, you know, get it composted, they would just die forthwith. 
And so uh, my, my guess, and I didn't do any you know formal analysis of it or anything, but again, my guess is that uh, these cows are just so full of chemicals that even the manure that's coming out of them is contaminated. So my, my approach to this is to just, even from the big uh, industrial producers like Horizon, is to just go ahead and buy the organic milk just because at least there's some guarantees. Now, of course, Horizon has been, you know, criticized by from a d bunch of different angles, but at least they're not putting antibiotics and different hormones into the into the milk cows. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we're certainly going to always recommend, you know, buying organic when you can, you know, when you have the opportunity if you're if you're able to, um, whether it's you know milk or meat. Um, certainly trying to minimize your exposure to any chemicals in any way is uh, is the right thing to do if you have the opportunity. Of course, other people have other dilemmas involved in that, especially when it when it comes to buying local food or buying organic food, uh, you know, and which is kind of why I'm talking about this, because we do have this local dairy, but they're not an organic dairy. So it's kind of that that dilemma that one goes through and you know, again, Michael Pollan really lays this out in, in his writing, but uh, the, there's some tough decisions for, for the eater to make sometimes. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, I think it's all about having as much information as possible. And that's, you know, kind of the definitely the EWG stance and all of this and kind of, you know, why we and a, and a lot of other groups, you know, support, you know, right to know and more labels and just making more information available so people, you know, can know whether their local dairy is using a lot of, you know, hormones and, you know, antibiotics and can decide what's important to them because that's what it's going to come down to. And, of course, the first step is to just start raising these questions and start thinking about it and for people to think about where their food comes from and the next time they pour themselves a glass of milk or serve themselves some meat, you know, think a little bit about that. And and uh, then the next step is for citizens to maybe take a little bit of action and go visit the local dairy or, you know, talk to other like-minded consumers in the community and, and just kind of try to start some dialogue and debate about this. Um, let me ask you, though, as we go on and on about pesticides and uh, the importance of reducing our exposure to them. Is this really that, are, are these pesticides really that dangerous? Are they really that applied in that great of quantities? Is this something people really need to care about? Well, we certainly think so. I mean, you know, there, there's enough research data out there to, to show that we should be concerned with these. I mean, pesticides are designed to kill bugs, so they're kind of inherently toxic. Um, and exposure has been linked to, you know, nervous and hormone system effects, to carcinogenic effects, to um, kind of just general skin and lung irritation. Um, and really what's especially problematic is for young children and for pregnant women um, who are much more vulnerable to exposure to these. You know, we're not, we're not really saying that exposure to one pesticide, you know, on your apple is going to mean that you're going to get cancer. But there's just the research shows that there is reason to be concerned already and still more needs to be done, especially regarding kind of long-term low-dose exposure and the results of mixing all these different chemicals. And also, it just, it just makes perfect sense to me. If you have a tool like the tool that you all have put together and, uh, 
you're, you're a woman out there and you're pregnant or you're breastfeeding or you're a mother and you have small children um, or you're a husband and you're concerned about your children or your pregnant wife, um, you can grab this list. Again, it's, it's available online for free. And, you know, during that time when your kids are small or that your wife is pregnant, you can just make that little extra effort to, to buy those dirtier uh, produce selections uh, organic. And you can sleep a little bit easier knowing that the, uh, the Clean 15, you can buy those conventionally and, and not have to worry as much. Exactly. It's about taking those little steps where you can, you know, we don't want everybody to to freak out and stop eating produce. Um, But since we have this available, you know, it's just great to do what you can to try to minimize that exposure. Sure. Like I said, a great tool for people to, you know, kind of help them plan their eating habits, depending on where they are in their life and and what they're doing. So is there anything that I didn't ask you about that uh, you really feel like needs to be addressed? Uh, no, I don't think so. I just got that point out. You know, we get a lot of people who do say, oh, so are you telling me not to eat fruits and vegetables? And that's certainly, you know, we would never <laughs> recommend that, you know, if you're going to eat an app, you know, if you're going to have a snack, it's better to eat a conventional apple than a, than a bag of potato chips. But um, it's just that you should be aware of kind of what you're getting yourself into when you're making those decisions about organic versus conventional. And Maybe at some point when we transition ideally into a world where pesticides are used very sparingly, then we won't have to worry as much about that. Um, Until then, you know, everybody's busy and nobody has the time to, um, you know, do the kind of research that you've done on your on on their own or or really to even go out of their way to get an organic apple when they need it. Um, you know, if they need some fruit for, for the family basket for the week or whatever, you know, maybe they can just take a quick look at the list and say, well, apples aren't so good, but, uh, you know, here's something else that's, that's a little bit better, like pineapple and they, or mango, and they can pick up maybe a pineapple or a mango and kind of substitute out if they can't get that organic uh, solution to that. So it's just about, I think, giving people the information, like you said, they need to make those great choices. So I thank you for the great work that you've done, and I encourage people to go and get their hands on this list, print it out, and uh, tell friends and family. And hopefully, you know, people will be able to make those tough choices um, in their daily lives. Thanks so much for joining us, Amy Rosenthal. Thank you very much. That is the end of my interview with Amy Rosenthal of the Environmental Working Group, also known as the EWG. Thanks again to the EWG for the good work that they're doing. Since I recorded that interview, which was, oh, a little bit of a while ago, uh, I have thought a little bit about the pesticides data, and I should mention that Amy was nice enough to send us a refrigerator magnet and a few of the business-sized cards that go in your wallet of the pesticides list. So we are using that. And the refrigerator magnet is quite handy, and it's been a little bit of an eye-opener for us to see some of the things that are on that list that are in the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. Uh, One thing I did notice is that a lot of the things on the Dirty Dozen list are fruits that grow on trees, like cherries, apples, um, nectarines, 
peaches, which is number one. And some of the things that surprised me that were on the clean list were tomatoes and onions. My experience with these crops has been uh, fairly heavy pesticide applications, but I should qualify that by saying that my experience with these crops has mostly been in South America, specifically with tomatoes and onions. So one of the things that occurs to me as I think about this list and the data that it's based on, now Amy has mentioned that the sample size was quite large from, I believe, 2000 to 2007. Now within that sample size, we do not, one of the things we do not know is the variability for each type of produce. Now that is to say if a specific crop has a high standard deviation associated with the pesticide residue data, then it's difficult to pin down with any certainty actually how much residue you're getting on that specific apple that you have in your hand. So chances are that it has a high amount of pesticides, but if there's a lot of variability in the data, it can be a very high amount of pesticides or it could be a very low amount of pesticides. And this all goes down to the fact that all these different fruits and vegetables are coming off of different farms, uh, different seasons, meaning that one season may require, one, one production season may require more pesticide application because of a particular outbreak or whatever than another. And, you know, one farmer might be a little bit more innovative in using less pesticides, which of course ideally improves his or her bottom line, than another farmer. So we don't know what the actual variability in that data set is, and I would challenge the folks at the Environmental Working Group or anybody else who's out there that has access to this data set um, to find creative ways to deal with that. Now, at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that Amy did mention was you're probably always going to be better off buying organic, um, but also that knowing where your food comes from is really very important in all of this. And obviously this is hard in our modern day food system. Um, many of us do try to buy organically. Many of us do try to buy locally or from a local CSA, but that's not always possible. And some of us are more diligent about doing that than others. So it's important as I said in the interview, at least to start thinking about these things. Now you can find the full list of the EWG pesticides list at foodnews.org, which as I said, I will link to in the show notes for this episode. And I suppose I will post another forum thread on Global Swadeshi, and I will post a link to that on the show notes for this episode as well. Although participation has been rather disappointing, as I have said, and I wonder if maybe another forum might not be more appropriate. And I will start looking into that, but until then, I'll just keep posting the threads on the Global Swadeshi Network and hope that you, the listeners, will post some of your comments, thoughts, and ideas on that site. And if you are a member of the Global Swadeshi Network, then you're already a leg ahead of some of the other folks that are out there, so please... Start the debate, start the conversation. This and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under an attribution, share alike, 3.0, Creative Commons license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. I'm Frank Aragona.
This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.